Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, and this can be found on page 1148 of the Church Bibles. That's 1148. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you notice there was a delay at the beginning of the service. That was not because I'd run off. Well, keep, your, uh, keep the Bible open in front of you, if you would. And uh, highly thank you very much for reading so clearly. And um, let me just say, this, this is a challenging uh, portion of God's Word that we're looking at tonight. And I do want to reiterate what Justin said earlier, that this is deeply personal um, for so many here and uh, conscious that there'll be uh, new students maybe, maybe um, you're just inquiring about Christianity and I hope very much so that there will be really healthy conversation starters uh, both tonight and throughout the next, uh, this whole series of, of five as we really try to delve into what the Bible has to say, much of what is countercultural, uh, but actually has uh, been consistent uh, throughout many hundreds of years, and so we pray that, I certainly pray that as I sit under God's word, as I sit under the authority of God's word, that I would be gentle, that I would be kind, that I would be thoughtful, and I would be able to speak truth in a a way that is clear and helpful to all of you. Well, would you join me? Let's, Let's pray together before we look at this. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us this evening. Give us ears to hear in your name. Amen. So we come this evening to a new series called Sex, Love and Relationships. And it's important, an important area for us to consider for many reasons, not least that we live in a world that's been shaped by the the sexual revolution of the 1960s, by the rise of internet pornography, by the increased awareness of sexual abuse with hashtag MeToo in which people publicize their experience of sexual abuse. We also see increasingly the growing acceptance of alternate lifestyles. 
And then the mixed messages that we are receiving from the Church of England. Now, could there be a more important topic for us to consider? It's a topic that's on many of our minds. It's a topic that is powerful, that touches the core of who we are. See, God made us to be sexual beings. And yet, it's a topic that's fraught with powerful, conflicting emotions. And it's also a topic in which we are bombarded with messages every day, messages that conflict and can easily overwhelm and confuse us. So I want to say straight away, thank you so much for being here this evening. And I would really ask that as we journey together that you would pray for our times together, that they would be helpful and and constructive. And my goal simply is to be gentle and to be kind and to see, to try and help clearly you see and me see what the Bible has to say on this important topic. And we find ourselves in Corinth. Now, I don't know if we've got a map that could come up on, on the screen. It's a small one, but if you can see that. Corinth is a fascinating city uh, with a wonderful history because of its strategic location as century of the four and a half mile isthmus that bridged the Peloponnese and the mainland. And it played a significant role during the Golden Age of Athens, eventually being defeated by Rome in 146 BC. And it was a city that was steeped in Greek culture, Greek thought and influence. Now, you may have come across this picture. It hangs in the the Vatican Museum in Rome. I don't know if we've got a picture. There we are. Can you have a look at that? And it's called the School of Athens. That's actually just a part of, of, of the picture, just a, a small part of it. And this image here before us, it's, uh, it speaks of the Greek philosophy of dualism that separates the spirit and, and the body. And if you look very closely, you'll notice there Plato on the left, and you'll see that he is pointing up. And what he's saying is that true reality is not this earthly, bodily stuff, but it's the spiritual realm. And dualism was the pervading thought of Corinthian culture. It had been for generations. For generations, you see, of thinkers have been inspired by by the idea of gaining some sort of secret knowledge, some special teaching that would transport them beyond the material realm to the spiritual realm. Now, by way of of background, it's clear there from, from Acts Chapter 18, that Paul has visited Corinth before, in around sort of AD 50 AD, around, AD, around 50 AD, and, and that would have been some three or four years before this letter to the church was written. And we know, we know from reading 1 Corinthians, we know that the Corinthian church readily accepted the gospel, and indeed they considered themselves to be spiritually minded. Hence that huge emphasis on the gifts later in 1 Corinthians. This is their natural sweet spot. It resonates, you see, with their emphasis upon the spiritual. And this evening, as we come to look at these chapters in 1 Corinthians, it is helpful for us to keep in mind that in the Corinthians, we have new believers who are still being influenced by their old ways of thinking. In much the way many of us are. It's very hard, isn't it, not to bring your old ways of 
thoughts, your old thoughts and presumptions to faith in Christ. Inevitably, we find ourselves, don't we, looking at the gospel through the lens of the culture that we have been influenced by. It's why it's so challenging for us to grapple with some of the things the Bible will be teaching us over the coming weeks. But the same is actual fact is true for the Corinthians, who were actually as promiscuous and immoral and adulterous as our modern Western society. It would have made challenging reading for the Corinthians as they reconciled their normal behavior of the citizens around them with the norms of the Bible. It's a reminder that it's a narrative that is often out of step with culture because as Christians, we keep in step with God. Who you remember, ordained in the beginning an order that set the direction of all humanity. It was something that was good. It was was that man and woman were made in God's image. They were designed as helpmates. And it was a design that led to the procreation of the earth and pointed ultimately to the relationship between Christ, the groom, and his church, the bride. And points to the final day and the marriage feast of the Lamb at the end of time. Man and woman. And faced with a a sexually promiscuous city outside in Corinth, Paul says that there are sexual and other behaviors that need to be given up when you become a Christian. And barriers always feel harsh, don't they? You're telling me, I can't come in, and this behavior, this part of me, you're saying, I cannot bring with me into the kingdom of God? It feels harsh, doesn't it? It feels cruel. It can be like those, um, those swimming pool rules, you know them? No running, no diving, no bombing. It makes you want to do it. Okay, now look, that is a lot of backstory, but I hope you find it helpful. And we're going to be drawing on different aspects of this over the next few weeks. But this evening, we just have a few verses that Heidi read to us, but we're going to consider them in some detail. And we're doing that because the Apostle Paul offers here vital pastoral counsel for every Christian who struggles to live a life of holiness. You see, there's an inner fight, as the Apostle Paul puts it at the end of Romans chapter 7. The good that I want to do I do not do. And that conflict, that battle with the old life, certainly describes the believers in the churches in Corinth. And so in our passage this evening, the Apostle Paul wants to place in the Corinthians' hands and in our hands some scriptural and spiritual weapons that we can use in the continual and irreconcilable war, as one old ancient confession puts it, a continual and irreconcilable war with sin to help us win more battles than we lose. And if you look at the passage, just take a look now, you'll see that it divides relatively naturally into two main sections. In verses 9 and 10, there's a word of caution. And then in verse 11, there's a reminder of grace. And we're going to look at both in turn. So let's begin. Let's begin with the word of caution. Now, one of the great temptations when you come to this 
passage is to focus prematurely on the list of sins that will exclude a person from the kingdom of God and skip right over the nature or the problem itself that Corinth are facing. You see, there seems to be, they seem to be suffering from something that I imagine all of us can relate to. Gospel amnesia. Truths that we ought to have known, but we have forgotten. Conveniently forgotten. We see the problem when we observe the repeated question in verses 1 to 11. Actually, it continues to be repeated right through to the end of the chapter. Paul there in verse 2 asks, Do you not know? See that again in verse 3 and again in verse 9. Again in verse 15 and verse 16 and again in verse 19. So over and over in this passage, Paul asks them, Don't you know? That is to say... They ought to have known some truths that Paul considers to be foundational and elementary that they seem somehow to be ignorant of. They have forgotten them, overlooked them, or dismissed them. And in verse 9, the particular problem that their theological amnesia seems to have led them to is the minimization of the sinfulness of sin and the absolute necessity of holiness if a person is to have any hope of heaven, verse 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God, he asks. Now, there are a number of things I'd like to point out about the list of sins that Paul mentions here. First of all, notice in verse 9 and 10 how the list is massively varied. Even though chapters 5 to 7 are really all about sex in different ways, but Paul won't allow sexual sin to be singled out even in that context as if you are more guilty than any other sin, if you're guilty of that. This this list works as a whole, and since we are people with varied backgrounds and experiences, this list will strike us differently. Now, it might just be worth pausing briefly just to ask a question. What did the Corinthians believe about sex? They believed your sex drive was just your appetite. Just like you eat when you get hungry, so you have sex when you want to. And just like not eating leads to death, they wondered if you could really be alive if you hadn't had sex. And they couldn't see anything wrong with Christians visiting prostitutes. And they were proud back in chapter 5 that someone at their church was sleeping with his father's wife. But also, and at the same time, they believed once you were married, then maybe you better stop. That there is something unspiritual about sex, especially for married people as we'll see in a couple of weeks in chapter 7. And you would be better to stop sex in the marriage entirely because all the most spiritual Christians don't have sex. Now, isn't that a rather peculiar combination of things? Just an appetite, but married people better not. But if you never have it, what is wrong with you? It's crazy. But actually, if we just stop and pause for a moment, it fits quite neatly into 21st century Britain. 
So there is lots here that I suggest will help us over these coming weeks. A lot here to help us, guide us, and help us grapple with some of the things that the Corinthians are struggling with, the same things that we are. And Paul says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now we're going to see Paul over, these, uh, over this uh, passage and over the next couple of weeks drive this home in, in different ways, and, and, but particularly in these two verses. And I want you to notice, first of all, very simply, what happens when gospel amnesia leads us to forget a foundational truth like this. That gospel amnesia, that theological forgetness, forgetfulness, what it does, it creates a vacuum in our thinking that must be filled. See, if you remove the truth, what God is teaching, there's a vacuum, isn't there? And you've got to fill it with something. And the danger is, is that it could be filled with lies or deception or error or cultural accommodation. And so Paul says in verse 9, do not be deceived. See, he knows if you have forgotten these truths that you have been taught and instructed in, the great danger is, is that you will be, be, be deceived. Now, one of the puzzling areas for many of us has been the question of what the Bible means when it warns against sexual union between people of the same gender. What does the Bible say about same-sex relationships? And I'm focusing in on this particular one. I'm addressing it in large part because of the mixed messages that we've been receiving from the Church of England. And there are two popular views that are out there today. First, some people believe that the Bible only speaks against some kinds of homosexuality. For instance, some argue that the Bible speaks against uncommitted homosexual relationships, one night stands. So in other words, the Bible isn't against loving, committed, same-sex Relationships. That's one view that you might hear. Second, others believe that the Bible is against all kinds of same-sex relationships. And this includes com committed ones. So which one is correct? Now, as someone has said, there's a quote here. Let me read that to you. Our feelings matter. Our stories matter. Our friends matter. But scripture, not our feelings or stories, has the final word in the end. I must say, as I've been looking and reading into this subject, I've really appreciated the honesty of the theologian Luke Timothy Johnson, who's a pro-gay advocate. And when he says this, let me read it to you. The task demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says. And Luke Timothy Johnson, he concedes the scriptural argument and appeals to his own experience as a greater authority than Scripture. And surely, as I said earlier, Scripture has to have the final word, not just on this issue, but every issue. And it is clear that the Bible resists all kinds of same-sex relationships. 
Now, Rosaria Butterfield, who was a professor at Syracuse University, she identified as a lesbian. She was active in the LGBT community and on her way to, to work, actually, in the field of queer uh, theory. And she became friends, it's quite an unusual story, how she became friends with a, a Christian pastor and began to read the Bible as a piece of literature. As, a, as an English professor, she had a, a high respect for the text. As someone with a PhD, she was ably prepared to know what a book says, to assess the integrity, if you like, of textual history and canonicity, and to make a call about its authority. And she found that the Bible both encouraged her and enraged her. She also realized there was a danger of textual revisionism, of disregarding text within the text. And it made her wonder, and there's a book you can read, it made her wonder if some people would benefit from attending her queer theory class so that they would better understand how to read the Bible with integrity. She didn't always like what she read, but the Bible began to transform her. She realized the Bible is against all kinds of same-sex relationships. She realized that the Bible did talk about homosexuality as a sin. But she also realized that that is not the end point of sin. It's not the root of all sin or even the root of her sin. The real problem, and one that goes beyond any sexual categories of sin, is that we refuse to give God the glory for creating us. She tried to, she says, throw the Bible in the bin. But she couldn't. She realized that the key issue isn't whether we're gay or straight or anything else. The real problem is that we're proud. And that we want to be autonomous rather than submissive to God. And she writes that she couldn't yet turn from being a practicing lesbian because she still didn't understand why it was wrong. But she realized that she could sure repent of being proud. And that's exactly where she began. Now, Rosaria Butterfield, she never did get a blinding flash of, of light, of insight from the Holy Spirit that told her why homosexuality wasn't right. It didn't work like that, but here's what happened. Let me read these words to you. The sinfulness of sin unfolded for me in the authority of the Bible. The growing sweetness with my union with Christ and the slow sanctification of the mind that this births. At a certain point in my life, I knew that I had to turn over the wheel to God, a little like an Alzheimer's patient who in a flashing moment of mental lucidity signs over his rights to his able-minded caregiver. A believer signs over her rights of interpretation to the God of the Bible. Lesbian sexuality did not feel unnatural. It occurred to me that I don't have to feel it to believe it. She continues. This was a spiritual awakening that opened me up to Scripture and to the Lord himself in a startling new way. My feelings were not proof that I didn't measure up. My journey into repentance was proof that I was one of God's own, one of the lost sheep, and he was leading me and guiding me and protecting me and comforting me. Now let me just point out just a few more things very quickly about the list of sins that Paul mentions here before we move on. I want to say that this list here is about behavior, not orientation. Now I think that is... Most important to say, you know, I have known uh, numerous alcoholics over the year, but I've only ever known one alcoholic who was literally, back in Pontefract, was literally able to stop drinking and give it up, and that was it. There was no more temptation. And that is rare. 
That hasn't been my normal experience of people who I've known. And the list here, notice, is about repenting of the behavior. Verse 11, that is what some of you were. But that tells us absolutely nothing about the raging battle with temptation inside. The orientation towards that behavior may go on being strong, particularly where it has formed a serious part of our life for many years. But it is the behavior and the persistence in the behavior that excludes someone from the kingdom of God. Not the temptation, not the orientation. Further, this is not a list about excluding non-Christian friends of ours from anything because we disapprove of their lifestyles. Actually, if you notice, back in chapter 5, verse 10, it tells us the opposite. It tells you to go out and hang out with them, associate with them. You know, and none of this is about the Christian who desperately wants to live for Jesus but finds themselves falling into temptation, even if that is happening repeatedly. This is not about non-Christians. It's not about orientation. But I want you to notice that its reach is broader. So sexual immorality, that begins the list. That covers any And every search for sexual gratification outside of consensual sex within a lifelong committed marriage between one man and one woman. So regular, unrepentant use of pornography would certainly be covered here. As would marital rape. Sex before marriage, even if you are engaged or planning to be, Do not be deceived. Do you not know? So, you know, there may be behaviors that we need to put decisively behind us this evening. Finally, and importantly, this is a list about wrong things that we do. Not about anything that may have been done to us. So particularly with sexual experiences, there can be a huge weight of inappropriate shame. And we understand now, don't we, that abusers do that to their victims deliberately, telling people that it was your fault. Now please hear me very clearly tonight. That is a lie. If you have been lied to like that, either from a voice in your own head or someone who has harmed you, that is a lie. Please, if it would help, talk to someone, maybe talk to a friend, even this evening. See, we meet victims of abuse in the Bible who are honored and loved as innocent victims of someone else's crime and sin. And there will be, statistically, but sadly, many victims of abuse here tonight. Most are not known to me. And perhaps you have not told anybody, but you have harbored that hurt away in your heart for years. 
But let me say to you that there are people here within this church family. Let me say, we are a broken people. There are people in amongst us who have hurt and been broken in these areas. And if we can help you and love you through some of your pain, some of the hard things that you have been through, that would be our privilege of loving you well. So don't keep these things in. Do please reach out. We may love you well. But hear me very clearly this evening. You have been blamed for this. That is a lie. It was not your fault. Okay, that's point one. A word of caution. Thank you for being patient with me. We have less time for point two, but I do want to spend a few minutes looking at verse 11 at a wonderful reminder of grace. Now, my guess, even just reading this list, my guess, everyone who is here tonight who struggles with greed or slander or sexual temptation of any kind will be wanting to know if that excludes them from the kingdom of God. No, there is no phrase more serious in the Bible And we need to make clear the list of people who have never gone wrong in these areas as a list with only one name on it in the whole of human history. And that name is Jesus Christ. And the list of those at Christ Church Forward who do not have ongoing temptation and ongoing failure in any of these areas is, that is a totally empty list. It will be all of us. And the same is true in Corinth. But it seems that gospel amnesia led the Corinthians to forget not just the danger that sin exposed them to, it also led them to forget the radical transformation that grace brings. Verse 11, And this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that is what some of you were. He reminds them. It's past tense. The sins he listed once defined them. They were known as greedy or thieves or drunkards. They were these things. Now that's actually very much how our society tends to think about these things, doesn't it? It's one of the distinctive cultural ideas of our age. The emphasis is all on how we self-identify. And there's a, a kernel of truth in that motif. See, the issue here really is about identity, but it's not the identity we invent or discover or choose for ourselves. The issue here is actually, it's the identity given to us either by the sin that enslaves us or the gospel that sets us free. And it seems the Corinthians continue to define themselves by what they once were instead of who they are now in Christ. Their sin continued to to dominate the way they thought about their identity, not Jesus. But Paul is emphatic here in his teaching. He's saying, this is something that you were. See, when you became a Christian, your dominating, enslaving sin no longer rules your life. It no longer defines who you are. You're set free. You are not now believer in Jesus who you once were by the grace of God. And you see, when you, when you define yourself by your old sin, your old life, you're actually, what you're doing is you're handing weapons to the enemy of your soul to use against you. But the Bible says, 
You are not who you were. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You are not who you were. And let me say to you, brother and sister, entangled in all that mess, it's time to start living in the light of your new identity in Christ. And in relation to same-sex temptation in particular, I just want to say a few things, if I may. Because churches have sometimes, often maybe, have gone beyond the Bible's teaching over many years in homophobic ways, I would suggest. And I want to speak particularly this evening to members of this church who are themselves same-sex attracted. You know, for many years, same-sex attracted Christians were made to hide and couldn't ask for support or couldn't be honest in the same way that anyone else on this list could. And they were lied about, as if they were more dangerous or further from God, or could be cured by wanting to be, or by a prayer after church. And that was wrong. And I am sad. And I'm sorry for the way the church has treated you, brother, sister. And these people have, in many ways, the hardest spiritual walk of any in the Western church today. Because at any moment in the media or the wider church, you can find experts to tell them that to walk in step with Christ is actually harmful, cruel, and repressive for them. There are Church of England bishops who will tell them to act on what they believe to be, the way they act in a way that they are saying, I do not believe that this is right. They are saying that that is wrong. They are standing up and they are brave souls. And their own bishops are undermining their stance. And they do all of that in a church environment which is still often unsupportive and suspicious and embarrassed of them. Well, let us not be that church. Let us not be that place. Let us be a place that recognizes that we are broken together that we love well. Together we journey as brothers and sisters upon the truth of Scripture. So as we finish, notice, if you would, verse 11. Again, it doesn't differentiate between one sin and another, another sin. And that is what some of you were. Slanderers, greedy, sexually immoral. And Christ church forward is full of them. The kingdom of heaven is full of them. Now, there are no idolaters, there are no sexually immoral people in heaven, but heaven is full of people who once were. There is hope for the worst of us in Jesus Christ. He loves to take guilty sinners and make them clean. So let me say to you, brother and sister, come to Jesus this evening with your greed. Come to Jesus ashamed over your porn addiction. Come to Jesus with your sin intact and let him do it all. He will wash you so that you feel 
fresh and clean again. Where your guilt has dominated you, overwhelmed you, blotted out your horizon of any possibility. You're so ashamed, even when you walk through the door of the church. Jesus says, I will robe you with my righteousness. I'll wrap myself around you so that in the heavenly throne room, God will look at you and not see your sin, but see you shining with the radiance of his own Son. You know, he loves to do that for sinners, for guilty sinners. The message of the Bible is that there is no one beyond the reach of the grace of Jesus Christ. So brother, sister, come. Come in your brokenness. Come in your messiness. Together, let's come as we worship now and respond in song. Let's bring our stuff to the throne of grace and know that in Christ there is cleansing, there is washing, and there is forgiveness. Amen. Well, let's just take a moment to be quiet. Can I just say that I'm sure that lots of questions are going around in your mind and things you want clarifying about. Well, there's a question box at the end. And in four weeks' time, four weeks from tonight, we'll have a panel and we're going to try and pick up some of the questions. So do put your questions in the box and we'll try and address those four weeks from tonight. God bless. Let me pray for us. Father, we do just um, sit quietly now, conscious that many of the things we've spoken about this evening are deeply personal. And Lord, we want to acknowledge as a church national and as a church global that we have neglected and undermined and not supported our brothers and our sisters who have struggled with this particular area of same-sex attraction. And Lord, we dare to ask that this would be a church where those who maybe find that particular temptation and they struggle with it, that they would feel so much at home that we would be transparent in our brokenness. Meet us in your grace. Do things even through this sermon series that bring us to a deeper place of authenticity and realness with one another. Push away, remove from us our middle class veneer and let us realize that in Christ we are welcome at the throne of grace. Let us come together, we ask in your precious, precious name and find forgiveness, restoration and grace. Amen.